Drug rehabilitation programs are notoriously ineffective. Indeed, just one look at the recent crowd of Hollywood stars who have been in and out of rehab multiple times would make any objective observer skeptical. Is there any effective treatment today for drug addictions? What about developments in the lab? You are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Our guest today is Dr. Bertha Madras, who serves as Deputy Director of Demand Reduction in the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. Prior to this government post, she was Professor of Psychobiology in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She is an expert on drug addiction and has authored over 130 papers and book chapters, as well as receiving 16 patents. Welcome, Dr. Madras. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, in terms of treating people who have substance abuse problems, how effective is AA? My impression through uh, medical school and residency is that we had very little to offer substance abusers other than behavioral-type programs such as AA. How effective is Alcohol Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous in programs like that? For individuals that resonate with that approach, it is very effective. The gathering of statistics on this is much more difficult than for most healthcare venues for treatment because AA does not support a kind of research environment that one would have in, a, in an academic setting. But uh, there is reasonable evidence that for a number of people who do respond to spiritual intervention, that this is in fact very effective. And I can testify to the fact that so many people who have approached me on their successes in restoring their lives have been, in fact, in AA programs and used spiritualism and resonated with it in order to improve. We know that from the point of view of physicians, there is a bar for evidence-based practices but we have to remember that behavioral modification is the most challenging form of treatment in our society. Modifying behavior for food consumption, for smoking, for alcohol, for illicit drugs, for every one of these kind of activities that inherently gives rise to a form of pleasure and or euphoria, depending on the type of drug, is always going to be challenging. We're also aware that recidivism is high amongst people, that relapse occurs five or more times before a person can finally declare themselves and be declared drug-free for an extended period of time. So I think that we have to, first of all, recognize that these are challenging situations. We have to recognize that many different approaches come to the same endpoint of recovery and, in fact, cure. And the endpoints are really recovering, cure our desired goals, but there are many pathways to reach them. I'd like to talk just a few programs that we have that I think are very innovative and also ways in which I think treatment provisions should improve. The first is Access to Recovery. It's a program that was initiated just a few years ago in our nation. And what it did was start with two very fundamental premises that were not part of the federal program in the past. One is that people do reach the same endpoints through many different venues and that we should open up treatment provisions to a variety of treatment providers that approach the 
problem differently and that resonate with different types of patients. So that's number one. Number two is that recovery requires support services. If a person cannot afford babysitting money to get to a treatment, they're not going to succeed. If a person can't even afford a bus ticket to get to a treatment, they're not going to succeed. So the access to recovery supplied vouchers to people to get recovery support services, to get job training, vocational training, babysitting money, every possible way that would help them go to treatment as well as recover once their treatment is completed. And that's innovative. This program has worked very well indeed. It's met all its goals. In fact, it's surpassed its goals in terms of closing the treatment gap. What about specific types of treatment beyond AA? What about psychotherapy or medication treatment or inpatient behavioral treatments? Tell us a little bit about those alternatives. There are a variety of alternatives. There's residential, there's ambulatory. And residential is usually designated for people who really need intensive help and need an an enclosed environment where they're not going to be in a situation where they have access to drugs and that they have had a, a very long history of impairment due to drug addiction. So residential treatment is obviously a very critical component of of the choices that are available. Ambulatory treatment is far less costly. It can occur three days a week, and it usually involves one-on-one counseling, you know, case management, as well as group therapy. And then there are psychiatric services for those who resonate with cognitive therapy, for those who want to understand, you know, how they slid into this into this set of behaviors and want to get help in terms of problem solving, solving what issues they have in order to become drug-free. Now, psychiatric services are critical as well because of comorbidity. There are so many users, and the estimates range from 30% to 60 or more percent who are comorbid for psychiatric disorders. And one needs psychiatric intervention to diagnose the either depression or bipolar or schizophrenia or major anxiety disorders in order to provide treatment for the psychiatric as well as for the substance abuse because very frequently they go hand in hand. If you have just joined us, you are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson, and my guest is Dr. Bertha Madras, Deputy Director of Demand Reduction in the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy. Today we are discussing treatment of drug abuse and their various strategies. What about the recidivism rate in terms of residential treatment programs? Do people still have to fail five times before they're drug-free after a residential program? I don't think that anyone has to fail. I think that one of the most critical things is aftercare. If you are a physician, you know that if you have a diabetic patient, you are not going to give them a prescription for a medication and then say, I'll see you in 10 years. I think we have to change the view that a person who is recovering or recovered from a substance abuse problem should have follow-ups as frequently as one follows up for a chronic disease such as diabetes 
and or hypertension where you don't simply say you've completed treatment farewell congratulations that's one of the problems that we i think we face in our treatment that we do not have a locked in protocol for following up frequent as frequently as needed for these patients the other issue is i think that treatment centers need to be linked to the medical professionals for provision of medications to treat substance abuse. Because in some cases, for example, methadone or buprenorphine, we're very aware that these drugs are incredibly effective at uh, alleviating opioid addiction and helping people restore their lives and bringing about a renaissance in, in their existence. And uh, linkage between the medical professions and treatment providers for medications, I think, is, is quite a critical objective in, in improving patient care. Chantrix, which apparently sits on nicotine receptors in the brain, has just been released or marketed for smoking cessation. Are there any drugs in the pipeline that uh, will likely be very helpful in some of these other illicit drug addictions? There are numerous drugs in the pipeline. NIDA has a medications development group that has drugs in phase one, phase two, phase three, various phases for cocaine addiction, for uh, methamphetamine, obviously for opioids as well. NIDA spearheaded with a number of investigators the provision of buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid addiction. Can you tell those of us outside of government what NIDA is or stands for? NIDA stands for the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and it is the institute within NIH, within the National Institutes of Health, that supports 85% of the world's research on drug abuse. For these drugs that are in the pipeline, for instance, for is there anything for cocaine? There are a number of drugs that are being considered for cocaine. And as I said, for the psychostimulants, cocaine, methamphetamine, amphetamine. How do they work? Uh, is there any common pathway that they use? Well, interestingly enough, some of them are similar to the stimulants themselves. Some of them are, in fact, opioid antagonists. Some of them work through the glutaminergic system. There's a number of them that work on systems that one would not have predicted could be effective. For example, we have frequently in the past said if we want to work on opioid addiction with medications, we should be looking at opioid partial agonists, agonists or antagonists, and stick to neurotransmitter systems for the specific drugs. But it turns out that that premise may in fact be inaccurate. We know how cocaine and methamphetamine work. They work through transport mechanisms for dopamine or epi norepinephrine and serotonin, but it it turns out that some drugs that work on the opioid systems may in fact be effective for alcohol or for psychostimulants. So you certainly can't comment when drugs are in clinical trials, but it, it appears that drugs that can influence learning and memory, drugs that can influence the general opioid system may in fact have applications beyond the simple opioid system. And and that's, if I may perseverate for one moment, what's fascinating about that is that there's genetic research now that indicates that a common pathway amongst all drugs 
that provides genetic predisposition to individuals appears to be genes involved in learning and memory. So that drugs that somehow interfere with the laying down of learning and memory or influence it in one way or another may help, may alleviate some of the addictions. This is very, very early stages in thinking, let alone reduction to practice. But it appears that trying to address the learning and and memorizing component is probably going to be very beneficial in the future. I want to thank Dr. Bertha Madras, who has been our guest. We have been discussing reduction of drug abuse, actually specific treatment programs for drug abuse. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Benson. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions about this program or suggestions for other shows, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.